Here we are again, just the two of us, you doing whatever you're doing and me trying to be good to your ear hole, as Parliament Funkadelic would put it. Special shout out this week to anybody who's pushing a broom at three o'clock in the morning in a factory, arresting, sleeping, university, airport. Some other place like that where you're listening to podcasts to get you through the night. It's uh, it's an honor to be there with you. I know what that's like. I've had jobs like that. I've had a lot of fucked up jobs. I've pumped gas at three different gas stations in high school. One of which was the uh, the old Bluebird Garage in Casanova, New York. Shout out to uh, Bob and Lee Cowherd, the owners. Also uh, Roy Service Center in Fairfield, Connecticut. And uh, what the hell was the other one? The other one, the other one. I can't, I can't, I can't remember the other one right now. So, yeah, I've pumped gas. I worked in uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, which was disgusting to say the least. I worked at the Burger King. Got fired from Burger King actually um, because I was in high school and I had a very sexy girlfriend, Alicia, who worked at the Burger King in Manlius, New York, and. Um, I had this uh, 1976 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. That was my high school mobile. Uh, Somebody smashed into it and it was parked in the street and uh, fucked up the back. And uh, so I took the lid that was all crunched up off the trunk. And (laughs) I just, I screwed this like extra auxiliary brake light onto the side of the car. The corner was all mashed in. And I sort of pretended it was like a little pickup truck. And I drove that around um, until one day uh, there was a spare tire in the back. I didn't even think of, you know, I didn't think of it. Then one day I was in Syracuse. We were at some bar and uh, Syracuse is very hilly. And came out of the bar at night and this this wheel came rolling at, you know, 90 miles an hour down the hill. Holy shit. Hope that doesn't kill anybody. What the fuck was that? That's weird. Get to my car and see my spare tires gone. Somebody taking it out and rolled it down a hill. God knows where that ended, but I'm sure it wasn't good. Anyway, uh, so I was driving around that car in Casanova where I lived. Uh, Alicia and I had to go to the Burger King to work, and it had 99,992 miles on it. And I thought it was really important that she and I were together when it turned 100, so we just kept driving around in circles until it clicked over to 100,000 miles. And I'm sure we gave each other a kiss or whatever, and then we went to Burger King to to punch in, and we were, you know, 15 minutes late. And I just thought the manager was going to, you know, understand. I mean, that's a special moment in, in a young person's life when you turn 100,000 in your high school car where you've, you know, your entire sex life has taken place up to that point. And, um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't think it was, uh, 
he didn't think that was a good reason to be 15 or 20 minutes late for work. So he fired me, that pig-faced motherfucker. I remember him. I can remember exactly what that guy looked like. He had been, the job he had before uh, managing the manliest Burger King was he was a prison chaplain, I remember. <laughs> so that guy was having a hard time. Uh, anyway, why am I talking about that? Oh, weird jobs, yeah. Okay, and then, you know, gutting salmon in, in Alaska, and I've had all sorts of fucked up weird jobs. I was um, Ebonics to English translator. I think I told that story on, on Rogan's podcast or somewhere, and I got a bunch of shit from people who said that, you know, using the word Ebonics is racist. I, I don't know. I thought Ebonics, the whole term was um, invented by black studies professors at Berkeley. That's my understanding. Anyway, the story there is I was in um, Barcelona, and uh, I get a call from this friend of mine, Pinky, Spanish woman, who spoke English really well, and she was on this team of translators for a film festival, uh, in edit it was called. They have it every year in Barcelona. And that year, they were focusing on documentaries about the origins of hip-hop and Delta blues. And um, so Pinky calls me up and she says, Chris, do you understand black people? And I said, yeah, more or less, you know, I thought she meant like culturally, you know, <laughs> and, and it turns out that none of these Spanish translators, despite the fact they spoke English really well, none of them could understand the slang of these hip hop guys and the, the sort of uh, accents of these guys in the Mississippi Delta that were in these films. So they had already called another contact. They had a black guy. But he was British, so the fact that he was black gave him no insight whatsoever. So my job was I went down to where all the translators were, and we watched these uh, DVDs that they had, and they would pause and say, okay, what did that mean? It's like, oh, you know, this guy's all up in my grill. You know, I'd have to explain what that meant, or, you know, I, you know, I took the bitch back to the crib, you know, or what, <laughs> stuff like that. All I had to do is explain it in English. So I was literally translating from Ebonics to English. That's gone on my, my fucking resume for sure. I mean, come on. That's fantastic. Anyway, this week's guest is fantastic. Franz Duvall, one of the world's most respected, renowned primatologists uh, who has done more to bring bonobos to public attention than anyone else, really. Um, fantastic, interesting guy. Um, he's, in a way, Franz is... Uh, everything I'm not. He's the guy who has spent his life doing careful, meticulous research with primates, um, establishing so many different uh, things that nobody suspected about primates. Their their reconciliation, for example. He's he's been a rock in the stream of that's been flowing ever closer to this understanding of primates as being violent and therefore human nature being violent and the primate origins of warfare and all that kind of shit. He's been the, the rock in that stream that refuses to move and keeps pointing out the counter arguments, the counter examples, all the, the behaviors of reconciliation and socia sociability and, and um, caring and cooperation among primates. 
and the complete absence of the kind of organized warfare, murder, infanticide, and all these things in bonobos, who are, for those of you who haven't heard me say this a million times already, equidistant to human beings in terms of our shared DNA and uh, our last common ancestor. I often explain chimps and bonobos are like you've got two twin brothers, right? Uh, They're most closely related to one another, but the next most closely related is you. But you've got these two brothers who are twins, one of whom is kind of an asshole. He can be really violent. He can, you know, he's he's been known to uh, sexually abuse females. He can, he, he'll fuck up other males. He'll, he'll kill babies. He's a pretty nasty occasionally, not always, but certainly uh, has a, a history of um, offenses. That's the chimp, right? Then you've got this other brother who has never hurt anyone, who is very peaceful, very relaxed, gets laid a lot. Uh, the women love him. And uh, he's just a very chilled out, relaxed, friendly, helpful guy. That's the bonobo. Okay, but when you read about the primate origins of warfare, the primate origins of rape and how rape is an evolutionarily uh, an adaptive trade and all this kind of stuff, which is all over. I mean, the, the literature of evolutionary psychology is bloodstained. It's it's neo Hobbesian, as I explain in Civilized to Death. You only hear about the chimps. You don't hear about the bonobos. And to the extent that you do hear about the bonobos, it's largely thanks to the work that Franz Duval has been doing for decades. He's published many books. I don't even, I, I lost track, but more than half a dozen books, hundreds of scientific uh, papers. He's, um, you know, given the Tanner lectures at Princeton. He's, he won the Ig Nobel Prize, which I didn't know until he told me in our conversation here. Um, anyway, he's a, a very important, highly respected a uh, careful researcher who has gone through the, you know, jumped the academic hoops in order to get his work taken very seriously. And when I say he's everything I'm not, I haven't done that stuff, right? I spent my life wandering around, you know, translating from e- Ebonics to English. And then I wrote this book using the research of people like Franz Duvall. Um but I've not, I haven't done that research, right? I'm not an anthropologist. I've never lived with hunter-gatherer people. I, I haven't studied primates uh, directly. I haven't spent uh, years in the jungle with a, you know, a clipboard taking notes on you know, what kind of foods they're eating and what kind of mating behavior and so on and so forth. People, somebody has to do that stuff for people like me to come along and sort of consider what they've done and rethink it and, and reconfigure it and, and theorize that's what I've done, and uh, I can't do that without people who do the field work. Friends of all has done the field work. He's supported uh, scores of graduate students who've done the field work, and he's also um, uh, written a lot of fantastic books. If you're interested in knowing more about bonobos, the book that I always recommend to people, and I've probably given you know a dozen of them away as gifts, is Bonobo the Forgotten Ape which is, has text by Franz Duvall and photographs by Franz Lanting, who is a National Geographic photographer. It is a beautiful book. It will help you. It's a great introduction to bonobos and, and just beautiful photographs. Um, so I highly recommend that. I think it's, you know, 15 bucks at Amazon. It's a large format 
beautiful photography book. So it's it's well worth that. Um, anyway, so now here's how I met Franz Duval, which tells you a lot about the guy. He's Dutch, um, first of all, which if you've if you know Dutch people, that tells you something too. Calm, fair-minded, open-minded, uh, very decent, as most Dutch people are, until they get drunk and go to a football match. But that's a different story. Uh, the way I met him is when Cassie and I had just about finished Sex at Dawn. We were talking about how it felt weird. It felt wrong in some ways to be taking this work that the scientists had done and using their results to say, well, I, I, we disagree with you, okay? Uh, we disagree with your conclusions. And so it's kind of, it felt unfair, like, wait a minute, these people did all the work and here we are saying, you know, coming in, having done none of that work and saying, no, no, we think you're wrong about, you know, what this means. So I felt uh, that, Decency required me to offer some of these scientists the opportunity to respond before the book went to print because I didn't want to be unfair. I didn't want to, um, honestly, I didn't want to sound like an idiot if I was forgetting something or I didn't notice something, you know, because it's hard to write a book like this because you're, you know, what you say about primatology is going to be read by primatologists. What you say about genetics is being read by geneticists. What you say about psychology, psychologists, you know, anatomy by medical doctors. So you're, you're writing this multidisciplinary book and every argument in it is going to be critiqued by people who spend their entire life becoming experts in that particular field. So it's, you know, I don't mean this to sound self-aggrandizing, but, you know, you're walking into a fucking crossfire there, right? Because um, who's got the time and education? I'm, I'm no expert in everything, right? So, so one of the ways we tried to deal with that was to offer the experts the opportunity to respond um, before we went to print. So... I wrote to Franz Duvall and a couple of other people and, and said, look, you know, we use your work. We disagree with some of your conclusions. If you'd like to see uh, the section of the book that, that deals with your work, uh, I'd, we'd be happy to, to send it to you. And, and most of them said no. We're too busy, whatever. Some didn't respond at all. Uh, one person actually got really weird and still I still see her trashing me on Twitter and the book is a pile of garbage and blah 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 and Dan Dan Savage just doesn't know how what shitty science it is and and, and she actually accused me of intellectual dishonesty for having offered her the chance to respond before it went to print which I don't understand but that's the way she saw it anyway Franz Duvall wrote back and said, yeah, okay, I'll take a look. And I sent him the section. And he responded, well, have you considered this, you know, this research or have you looked at uh, so-and-so's book where she describes this and that? And we went back and forth a few times, all friendly, very, you know, like, okay, here's what you think, here's what I think, and here's why I think that, and da-da-da. And that after a few exchanges, he wrote back and he said, well, I don't know. You might be right. And these are important questions that we have to uh, to keep working on. You certainly have an interesting book on your hands. 
and I wish you wish you lots of luck. And I wrote back and I said, um, would would you mind if can I quote you publicly having said those things? And and he wrote back and said, sure, you can use it as a blurb if you'd like. Now, think about that. You're one of the world's most famous experts in your area. You sp- he's the head of the Yerkes Primate Center. He teaches at Emory University in Atlanta. He's world-renowned and someone you've never heard of who isn't even a primatologist, who has a PhD in psychology from some you know, um, distance learning program, school you, you don't know, you've never heard of, writes to you and tells you you're wrong about something and blah, blah, blah. Nine out of 10 people are especially, well, 99 out of 100 academics are going to get all flustered by that and get very defensive and who they're you and how dare you and blah, blah, blah. Friends of all just looked at what I said, engaged with it, found it reasonable, even though it disagreed with some of his conclusions, and supported me. Gave me a blurb for the book. That, my friends, is a scientist. His ego is not connected to being right. He's interested in advancing the conversation. He's interested in the truth being revealed. Whether he's the one who revealed it or someone else reveals it isn't important to him. What's important is that we move forward into more accuracy, more knowledge, more understanding. I admire the hell out of this guy. Uh, I imagine that's obvious. Um, so he, we've become friends. We got together in Barcelona. Uh, he was in town for something when we were there, and Cassie and I spent the afternoon with him. And uh, he was in Oregon recently, and he very generously um, found some time to hang out. So I, I went down to the hotel where he was, and we spent about uh, an hour in the hotel chatting, and I got some of that. He agreed to to let me record some of it for the podcast. So I'm really honored and thrilled to have him on the podcast. He's one of my favorite people in the world. And uh, I think you'll understand why when you listen to this. Okay, before we get to that, very quickly, uh, a couple of things. Um, A lot of people responded to the advice I gave uh, to young people a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was even last week, about, you know, don't, don't worry about going to college and getting in debt. It's an outdated educational system. People agree with that. In fact, I got a, a fantastic email from a CEO. Uh, he didn't say what kind of company he was a CEO of, but he said, you know, I've never heard anyone put that into words before, but that's true. I would love to have a smart young person approach me and give me the kind of energy that you're talking about in exchange for my experience and contacts and all that, that nobody does that. Nobody comes to me with that kind of uh, understanding. And uh, it's a shame. Other people have said, yeah, that's great advice, but who the hell wants to live in a van down by the river? (laughs) And that's a good point. I just said a van because I love traveling around in the U.S., and when I travel in a van, it's such a wonderful way to – it's like uh, it's like having a huge backpack, you know, that you can just have everything with you. But, you know, another thing that's really worth looking into is um, is these micro, uh, micro housing. Go to treehugger.com or maybe it's treehugger.org. 
but uh, they they do a lot of uh, in- interesting stuff on these very small houses that they you can put on a trailer. So you know, just put them on wheels, and then you don't have to deal with the zoning stuff. And uh, you, you get like thirty thousand bucks. You own your house, own it, and it's beautiful. It's like living in a yacht. You know, it's just have some smart design. There are people right near me here in Portland. I'm trying to get them to be on the podcast. They've converted their garage into a beautiful studio apartment. And so they've rented out their house. They live in the garage when they're in Portland. The renters are paying the mortgage and they fuck off and go traveling. They just drove from Costa Rica up to Portland three months in their van with the dog. Now they're here for a while really smart. So I want to get them on the podcast to talk about how they do this stuff because uh, it's possible to live very well without a lot of money. That's the point. I also want to, you know, as I say, I get a lot of emails, too many to answer, um, and I appreciate all of them. But uh, one that was really quite touching that I that came in this week is from a, a guy who had been in the Marines for four years and he got uh, other than honorable discharge after testing positive for THC. Uh, so he smoked a joint or maybe just hung out with people who were smoking a joint. And um, he writes about the the difficulty of being exiled from the tribe that was the Marines and, and uh, some of the stuff that he's been going through since then. Um, I, I'd asked, I just sent him an email a few minutes ago asking if he'd like to be on the podcast or maybe recommend someone, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are in the military. I, I'm looking at these download numbers from United Arab Emirates and Afghanistan and Korea and places where I don't imagine a lot of the local people are listening to some shithead in Portland talking about whatever it is I talk about. So I think it must be U.S. military people over there. So um, I'd like to have someone on because I've never been anywhere near the military, right? I'm more of a, you know, hippie lunatic than uh, the kind of disciplined, um, serious person that the military would want. Uh, And so it's it's a world I really... I'm ignorant of, and I'd like to have someone who can speak to what it's really like these days. So uh, if someone listening to this is willing to do it, you don't need to use your real name. We can do it on Skype and, um, you know, as anonymously as as you like. But I would like to have someone on who can talk about it because it's an important part of what's happening in American culture right now. And it's underrepresented, I think, in the national dialogue. The former Marine... um, also had a a recommendation of a song I should listen to, which I did, which blew my mind. It's very beautiful. By Parker Millsap, M-I-L-L-S-A-P. I I don't know if that's the lead singer's name or the name of the band, Um, but you can see it on YouTube. The song's called Heaven Sent. It's a beautiful song about a gay guy coming out to his Christian father. Um really quite moving and beautifully done. Uh, So I highly recommend that. And then I get other emails, like I got an email from someone just saying, you know, I can't listen to your podcast anymore. I, you know, you're great. I love you, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think Joe Rogan's an idiot and you don't. So I can't listen to it anymore. I don't know. I don't know why people need to write and tell you that, but 
Sometimes they do. So I don't want you to think all the emails are wonderful. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song that was sent in by some listeners of the podcast. The band is called Out of the Pine. Uh, The song is called Two Warm Hands. You can find it on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and do a search of out of the out of the pine, out of the pine, and you'll see two warm hands. It's their uh, signa- s- single that they've just released. Hope you enjoy this. I love this song. I think it's really cool that um, people who listen to the podcast wrote it and performed it. And uh, I think the cellist uh, was the guy who sent it to me. So good on you, boys. Keep making the music. You're you're doing a great job. I really enjoy it, and I'm sure everyone else will. Go to SoundCloud and check them out and uh, listen to the rest of the music. It, a lot of it's really good. Thanks. Catch you next week.
That was Two Warm Hands by Out of the Pine. Uh, Before we get to Franz Duvall, I just wanted to pop back in here and say that I recorded this with a handheld, one handheld mic. So um, we're sort of passing the microphone back and forth. So if it sounds a little uh, weird, you'll hear him agreeing or me disagreeing or something in the distance. That's why. Just don't want you to be confused as you're listening. All right. Hope you enjoy this. Thanks. Bye. I'm here in the lobby of, where are we? The Deluxe Hotel in Portland. So if you hear music in the background, that's what it is. I'm with Franz Duvall. The first question I wanted to ask you, Franz, is I was thinking about this last night in light of your tenor lecture on veneer theory and and the origins of of, uh, human cooperation in the primate past. Do you know of cases of PTSD among primates? non-human primates people have speculated about ptsd for example in elephants after poaching events or elephants who are kept in zoos and and they have expanded those ideas i believe also to primates kept in small cages or uh, i'm not sure how apt that comparison is uh, with ptsd because ptsd is so specific to soldiers who have either seen killing or experienced killing or done killing uh, so I'm not sure how, how good these comparisons are. So I'm not sure we we can say that we have PTSD in animals. That would be a big statement. But I'm very interested in PTSD for very different reasons. Is that um, I, I'm very interested in empathy. And I think the reason 
we humans have PTSD after war is because we are not really good at killing. And um, we, we're not, we don't desire to kill. And I always use it as an argument when people say we are natural born killers. We, we, we like to go to war. We have warfare in our DNA. That's a sort of general statement about our species. Uh, if that were the case, we should have some joy in killing somebody. We, that, that's what you would expect as a biologist. If we, if we are natural born killers, we shouldn't mind killing somebody. And, and actually, I think we do mind. And that's why people come back. At least most, most of the people who come back from warfare, they are traumatized. And they're traumatized because they are not natural born killers. So someone who does take any joy in killing is considered to be psychologically ill, a psychopath. Yeah. So they, they, they say the statistics on warfare has been that most of the killing is done by 1% or 2% of the military. And if that's the case, that could be the 1% or 2% who is psychopathic and doesn't mind doing that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, it's very well possible that... Warfare is really not in our nature, and we need to be forced into it, and we need to be indoctrinated to do it, and it's not something we naturally want to do. I don't know if you've seen the recent articles about uh, the extremely high rate of uh, uh, drone pilots who are dropping out of the military and suffering from PTSD. Because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, interesting how technology is is distancing us from the act of murder of, or of killing in war. But even that doesn't really seem to, to help. Pilots who drop bombs from 20,000 feet still yeah. uh, suffer the effects. Yeah, I've heard about this, that statistic, and it sort of counters the argument of Conrad Lorenz, who long ago wrote about our aggressive instinct, instinct and said, well, uh, if we can see the enemy, if we're close to the enemy, of course we have our, our natural inhibitions, but they fall away when you, when you bomb people from a distance. That was sort of his argument. And, and, and these statistics show that that's actually not true, it's that we still know what we're doing when, we, when we're sitting in, in Las Vegas uh, steering those drones around, yeah. Incredible. So the, typically the argument is bonobos are peaceful, chimpanzees are warlike. Uh, you and I have talked about Jane Goodall's research in the war. and all. Where do you, where do you stand on chimpanzee warfare? I, I know that my, the Margaret Powers argument against uh, Goodall's work was that Goodall was um, provisioning the, the chimps and that caused a lot of the conflict. But there's been research since then showing group violence in unprovisioned chimps, is that correct? So, so a recent paper came out um, where they reviewed all that material from wild chimpanzees and bonobos, and they found 152 um, killings by chimpanzees in the wild, um, and only one suspected killing by bonobos. So, so the first comment I want to make about that is that the newspapers immediately took that data I said, this means that we are naturally prone to violence and naturally prone to killing because look at those chimps. And they ignored the bonobo story. And the bonobos are genetically exactly equally close to us. So they could also have built a story, look at bonobos, um, they are peaceful and they, they mingle between groups, but they, they focused on the chimp because I think that's a sort of the... The narrative that we in the West like to hear is that we are uh, we are good at killing and, and we will kill anybody who doesn't agree with us and look at the chimps, they do the same thing. So that was part of that story. Now the, the chimpanzee side, I have no trouble when people claim that chimpanzees are naturally violent. I, I've seen enough violence by chimpanzees myself to know what they can do and that they're capable of that. 
And, and yes, when Jane Goodall first published on this, she had a banana camp. And so that was a very easy criticism. People would say, uh, she's feeding the chimps and, and this has resulted in violence and, and all of that. But we know that many groups of chimps since then have been studied without provisioning and are still showing the same sort of violence. And so I think chimps are a violent species, at least under the current circumstances in the wild. Who knows how that was a million years ago? I don't know. About a million years ago, they split from the bonobos. And so then the question becomes, what, what was before then? Was it a chimp-like creature who was highly violent, or was it a bonobo-like creature who was quite peaceful? And then if you go back six million years, that's when we split off from their lineage, what kind of animal did we have then? It could have been gorilla-like, or bonobo-like, or chimpanzee-like, or unlike all of them, but still an ape, I would say. And um, when people say that, uh, such as, for example, Richard Wrangham, who says that for six million years we must have been waging war because chimpanzees do it and we do it, I would say, well, that's, that's really not supported by what we know necessarily. That's a speculation because we know on human warfare we only have data like that goes back 12,000 years or so. To, um, so. So for human warfare, we don't have evidence for six million years of warfare. And for chimps and bonobos, we don't know what it was that we had six million years ago. And so that entire statement is speculation. If people make that statement... but. That paper in Nature didn't make that. The paper in Nature was purely about is provisioning the cause or not the cause. Right. It didn't make much of a statement about what happened six million years ago in our lineage. And, and I was glad with that. I, I thought they were very diplomatic about that particular issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Richard Wrangham. He has a theory as to why bonobos and chimpanzees developed very differently after the Congo separated the two populations. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? Okay. So his theory is that the chimps are on the north side of the river, is that right? Where the gorillas are, and so chimps and gorillas have to compete for food, and on the south side of the river, because there are no gorillas, there's not that competition for common food sources, and therefore bonobos developed more peacefully. My, well, That makes no sense at all. That contradicts the central notion of natural selection, which is that populations would rapidly fill those niches and the competition would be taking place within a few generations, just as it does on the north side of the river. And yet that's accepted widely as the, as far as I know, as the prevailing notion for why they develop differently. Do you have a different understanding for that? No, there's two elements there. One is the, the ecological part on, on food food availability and, and the competition with gorillas and the, and the terrestrial vegetation that the bonobos have access to and the chimps maybe don't have access to. That is not particularly well supported, I understand, from my ecological friends by the actual data on what chimps and bonobos eat. Mm. And, and so I, I don't think it has been contradicted, but I'm, I'm also not sure it's very well supported, let's say that way. And then the second part of, of his scenario is, of course, that this allowed bonobos to develop in a different direction. But, that, you know, that puts the bonobo in the position of being an offshoot and the chimpanzee is the original type, which is, which is really not how I look at it. We, we don't know that. Yeah. And, and when the recent genome data came out on the bonobo, it, it showed explicitly that bonobos and chimps are exactly equally close to us 
there's no reason to look at the chimpas somehow closer or more like an ancestral type for us than the bonobo. And, and I remember that Kano, who studied bonobos for 25 years in the Congo, uh, he had an interesting idea, I thought. He said the Congo basin is, with all its uh, morass and, and uh, humidity, is probably the original environment, and so the bonobo may be the original species, and that the chimp who entered more dry woodland and so on may be an offshoot. And so he, he looked at the bonobo as the original type, who lives still in the original environment and didn't need to change, and the chimpanzee needed to change, and humans needed to change even more when we, when we entered the savannah. And so um, all of this is speculative at this point, and, and to present the bonobo as an offshoot is, is, a, is a common strategy, because many anthropologists don't like the bonobo. The bonobo is too peaceful for them, too sexy, too peaceful, too female-dominated, so the bonobo has a lot of characteristics that they don't like. And as a result, they, they prefer to present the bonobos as, as a sort of a marginal species that we don't need to pay attention to. But there's really no evidence for that. Speaking of evidence, are, have bonobos and chimpanzees mated? Mm-hmm. And have they produced fertile offspring? Fertile, we don't know. I know that there's a circus in France which had chimpanzees and which uh, adopted some what they thought were chimps, but ended up being bonobos. And so they, they interbred, and they had offspring. I wouldn't be surprised if those offspring are, fer- are fertile. That's very well possible. They're close enough for that. Because, yeah, the, the, as you've pointed out in, in several of your books, people didn't really distinguish chimps and, and bonobos until, when, the 70s? Or? Oh, no, they, they were distinguished in 1929. Wow by an anatomist uh, who discovered some skulls in a, in a Belgian museum. And he realized that the, the skulls were different enough to, to call them different subspecies, and then later an American turned them into species. And so they have been called different species since 1933. But most people didn't realize that, um, and, and, and the zoos still mixed them up uh, at that time. Uh, and, and now, of course, uh, we, we, we know that they're different species, and we are very careful not to mix them up. So with that history of intermingling in zoos and circuses and elsewhere, uh, you would think that if they weren't producing fertile offspring, that would have come to people's attention earlier for commercial reasons. So I guess my question is, what the hell is a species? Because my, my understanding is that a species is, is distinguished by the fact that it can't have fertile offspring with another, a member of another species, and yet that seems to be falling apart. Yeah, you, you should never ask a biologist what is a species because taxonomy is like the, the biggest mess. And, and fortunately, we nowadays have DNA to, to sort out and sometimes find connections between species that we didn't know existed. And uh, the definition of a species is so problematic, a species or a subspecies, and so, in a way, so subjective. So, for example, you can breed a lion with a tiger. So, so what are we going to make of that, you know? Right. And, and like, I've got 4% Neanderthal blood, right? Yeah. So, apparently, how are the, I don't understand the concept. So, does that point to a fundamental structural problem in biology, or is this just wordplay? I think it's an arbitrary point at which we say this is a species or this is a subspecies. Mm. Uh, it, there's no hard science on that. And, and we, we have rules of thumb. If animals can't breed together, yes, there is, they're definitely different species. If animals 
could breed together, but they live in different geographic regions. And so, and so we have all these rules of thumb that may, make us say this is a species or not. But um, it, it's, it's tough. And so, for example, in the chimpanzee, we used to have three subspecies. And some people have argued that the bonobo should be a subspecies instead of separate species. Humans should be even part of the pan genus or, or the chimp should be part of the homo genus. Uh, all of that is sort of... Uh, up for grabs. Yeah. yeah, okay, so now that brings me to the next thing. Could humans and bonobos... Interbreed? Yeah, I know Stalin had a breeding program. Do you know about that in, in Cuba in the 30s, I think? Yeah. Has never been confirmed, of course. Oh, really? So, so, so that's a speculation. Uh, uh, the, the, the Stalin? Humans have different numbers of chromosomes. Right. I think that would be prohibit. Right. Um, I'm not sure it has been tried. I would never recommend trying it. <laughs> The, the, the Desmond Morris, long ago, like 50 years ago, he, he said, uh, the problem is that you don't know the offspring. Do we put them in the school or do we put them in the zoo? Yeah. And, and so you, you really don't know how to go with that, you know? Have you seen the film, uh, was it called Nim Chimsky? Yeah, yeah that, that was interesting, where they were raising their daughter with the chimp, hoping that the chimp would become more human, but their daughter yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of became more chimp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because we humans are such great imitators. Yeah. That yeah. the, the kids immediately start. The, the kids started grunting, I believe, instead yeah. of talking. Climbing the walls. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, what was I going to ask you earlier? Uh, are you work? Oh, we, we talked about this before, but uh, do you want to talk about the the book you're working on now? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm writing a book on animal intelligence, and and because in the last fifteen twenty years. We have such an explosion of knowledge about animal intelligence and people are so much more receptive to it than, than they used to be. Like uh, when I was a student, you couldn't even talk about, let's say, animal cognition. That would Human cognition, yes, you could mention that, even though that was problematic also. But animal cognition, definitely not. And now we have every week a paper come out on rats having regrets about their decisions or octopi using tools or... Uh, all sorts of uh, crows using tools, all sorts of things are coming out. And so I'm reviewing at the moment what we know about animal intelligence, but also the history of our field, because the history has been quite problematic in many ways. And I feel that we now reached the point where we are dropping the behaviorists, uh, the behaviorists who claim that everything is based on conditioning, stimulus-response conditioning, uh, and, and I'm not saying that they are wrong, that stimulus-response conditioning is a... I'm sure it's an important factor in, in animal cognition, but it's just one of the many things that, that we pay attention to. And, and we have reached the point now that we can freely talk about animal cognition, that people are very receptive, uh, and science is getting more receptive, and the word cognition and animal is, is getting so popular that many journals are now changing their names because they want to have the word cognition in there. Um, because it's very it's becoming a field that's very attractive to many people. As as you probably know, and certainly listeners of this podcast know, I'm very suspicious of the notion of progress mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's generally used as a way to manipulate people into you know doing something that's against their interests. But if I had to to point to uh, progress, I think it would be exactly the sort of thing you're talking about: the breaking down of boundaries between. Uh, human and non-human, you know, accepting the fact that we're all animals, uh, that we're all thinking, that we're all feeling, experiencing, uh, breaking down the, the, the barriers between straight people and gay people and racial barriers and all these things. 
I think that's a huge source of progress. But in a sense, to me anyway, it feels like a return to a pre-civilized uh, consciousness. Let me say something about that. Because, because animal intelligence used to be non-controversial. So, so when Darwin uh, wrote uh, his book on animal emotions, you know, human and animal emotions, the expression of the emotions, that's the title of the book, uh, that was not controversial at all, and people had all sorts of uh, interests in animal higher intelligence. It did become problematic at that time because uh, the, the messages were mostly anecdotal. And there's a lot of danger in just going by little anecdotes of my dog does this, my cat does that. And so that's where the more rigorous science stepped in. And then they made it a taboo to talk about animal intelligence and a taboo to talk about animal emotions. But there was a time before this where this was totally uncontroversial. And if you would say my dog has emotions, everyone would be happily saying yes. And we're, we're going back to that point. Now you can again say that yeah. your dog has emotions. And most scientists will say, yeah, of course. Yeah. And then the question becomes... How do we measure emotions? Uh, how, how do we go about studying it scientifically? Neuroscience is a, is a very big help in this because the neuroscientists are the, one, the ones who started studying, let's say, fear in the amygdala. And, and if you study it in the rat to treat problems in the human, it, it, you have to make all these connections between humans and animals, and that's what they were doing. And so uh, the neuroscience have helped break down these barriers to some degree, and uh, the, the situation is sort of returning to the time that we could freely talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Why, why do you think, and, and I guess this relates to our earlier conversation about violence as well, why did these subjects become forbidden? Why, why, why in whose interest is it to believe animals don't have cognition or emotion? Yeah. That was, you know, the Skinnerians, they developed this operant conditioning scheme. And instead of saying this is one way to look at animal behavior, they wanted it to be the only way to look at animal behavior. And so there was a certain overreach, which you get sometimes in science uh, based on ideologies and, and uh, absolutist thinking and, and Im imperialism of, of a certain field, like we're going to take over all the study of human and animal behavior. Yeah. And so Skinner and Watson, they had this idea of we established this school and that's the only way to think about these things. And I was recently in San Francisco. I, I was in, in, a, in a building which is called Tolman Hall. And Edward Tolman, I sort of... Edward Tolman lived on the West Coast and so was sort of outside of the East Coast influence where Skinner was at Harvard and so on. And, and he had ideas about cognitive maps in animals and he had... Uh, the decision-making and animals had expectations. And so there were a few scientists already in the 1930s who thought quite differently and much more liberally about these issues. But they only could publish, unfortunately, in, in second-ranked second, second journals. They could not publish in the premier journals because their opinion was not really appreciated. Yeah, You, you were talking earlier about uh, research you're doing in uh, surgical yeah. units and how ego and conflict between the doctors uh, becomes problematic and I, I can't think of a place more rife with conflict than academia you know and ego talk about ego it's unbelievable uh, you know I'm not an academic so I'm free to take my shots at, at these people and sort of you know stay out of the fray but it's uh it's incredible how egotistical and, and how vehemently people will defend 
arbitrary ideas. Yeah, you will never be able to stay out of the fray. That's an illusion that you, <laughs> that you can do that. Yeah. But I, I remember once seeing a lecture by a, a businessman, and he had on the wall, he had these projections of PowerPoint, you know, of, of graphs about scientists versus business people. And so he, uh, he had at some point a table where on the left side there was the column for the business people, and so it was competitive. And then under the scientists, he had cooperative. <laughs> and then under the, the business people, he had looking for money. And then under the scientists, looking for the truth. And he had it so completely wrong because science is also about money and science is also about egos and, and competition is rife. And, and we always joke about it. There's, why do academics fight so much? Is because there's so little at stake. That's usually yeah, what we say. Exactly. So in academia, that certainly seems to sort of replicate the, the chimpanzee interaction, the model of interaction more than bonobo. Is there, is there an area of public life for, that is more bonobo-like? Because even feminist... Dom- I, I used to work for an organization that was all women except for me and one other guy. It was like 50 women and me and this other guy. And I have to say, it was not a bonobo-like uh, environment. Yeah, that's even what they say about the communes of the hippies. You know, the, you would think at first glance that's, that's the most bonobo-like situation we can get. But those communes were also run by guys who who stole each other's girlfriends and beat each other up. and yeah. <laughs> yeah, So it was not as nice as it looked, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And for that, unfortunately, that sort of undermines, you know, my, my hope that humans are, are more bonobo-like than chimpanzee-like. If we can't find an example of human interaction, we can all blame it on society, though, and, and civilization. Yeah. I, I would say human males are very chimp-like. Yeah. Human males have a lot of bonding. Chimp males have a lot of bonding. And coalitions and politics and power politics. and Yeah, I, I, I feel um, that parallel is quite strong. Do you have children? No, I don't. Not, nor do I. And it, it, I regret that only on, in the sense that I, I feel like I would have learned so much about our species raising wild little animals like that, you know. But I'm from a family of six boys. Uh. And, and I always feel that my interest in conflict resolution, aggression and conflict resolution, I, I still have a good bond with all my brothers. Uh, but but uh, I, I was always, I remember seeing in chimpanzees that after fights they kiss and embrace or seeing in bonobos that they have sex after fights, that the people were very sort of surprised by that. And, and, and many of my students, they looked at aggression as a negative. Aggression is an antisocial behavior. I said, well, as long as they don't kill each other, what's the big deal? I, I was much less impressed by aggression than they were. Uh, and maybe because I'm from a big family where that was quite common. Right, right. Um, okay, here's the last question for you. After spending decades studying science and, and behavior and, and researchers and research and all, all the things you've looked at, can you point to something, one thing that we know we don't know? That is, do you see what I mean? It, I, I feel like there are, when we don't know something, we ignore it. Mm-hmm. And, and so that blank space on the map disappears and our map gets distorted by that. For example, in, in archaeology, we sort of ignore the fact that sea levels have uh, gone up about 400 feet since the out-of-Africa expansion. So most of the remains are underwater. 
And so what we find are not the common, typical remains of human settlements. They're, they're these, you know, uh, hunting sites or something up in the mountains. Um, and, but we ignore that. And so we extrapolate from these extraordinary finds and, and build our model on that. Is there something that comes to mind for you as something that we know we don't know and that we're ignoring to our detriment? Yeah, I'm not sure. There's, of course, the big question in our field is, is consciousness. Do animals have consciousness? And, and that's an unanswerable question at this point. Uh, but, but, of course, with upcoming neuroscience, I think 20 years from now, all these questions are going to be subjected to neuroscience more than they are now. Uh, it's possible that one day we will be able to get at that question. It's like how much do, for example, animals realize about the future? Uh, we, we test future orientation and planning behaviorally. So does a chimpanzee hold on to a tool that it needs five hours from now? Or that kind of approach. But it would be interesting to know what's going on in their head. Mm. Uh, and, and so th that's an area, I think, the consciousness uh, and deliberate decision-making area, which we cannot answer at this point, but will hopefully be answered in the future. We, we talked about PTSD earlier. Um, do you, have you seen animals grieving? Grieving is quite common. Of course, uh, all, all mammals have attachments. And so if a female loses her offspring, definitely she goes into a depression. Uh, and she definitely uh, sits in the corner, doesn't eat. And so, so, yeah, it's very hard to say if that's grieving, but um, they, they certainly are very depressed. And, and this also happens between individuals who are not mother offspring, who are friends. Or mm. th This also happens. So, so yes, um, I, I think uh, being emotionally affected, so to speak, to the point of not eating and so on, uh, of, of loss. Yeah, that's quite common. Uh, you tell a story, is, I don't remember if it's a chimp, a bonobo, a gorilla. There's a primate that takes a bird that had fallen in the enclosure. Yeah, this is a bonobo story. This is more like a story about empathy. So, so a bonobo female named Cooney, who was at a zoo in, in, in England, and uh, a bird flew against the glass. And the bird was dazed, and she, she picked up the bird. And, and instead of just holding it in her hands, she went to the highest point of her enclosure, which was an outdoor enclosure. And she, um, she spread its wings and sent it out like a little airplane, which, which I found very interesting. And I've seen similar sort of, there's, there's other stories like that, uh, because it, it requires that you take the perspective of the bird. That right. instead of, because it would not be a good behavior to apply to a bonobo, but to a bird, like it seems like a good thing to do. Yeah. It didn't save the bird, unfortunately, but... Um, uh, that's what she did. And, and so I'm, I'm very interested in that perspective-taking part of empathy, uh, which I think in some animals like dolphins and elephants and apes is quite developed. Are you aware of suicide in primates? No, no, no. There's, there's only one article on that, but that was tongue-in-cheek. That was a sort of like an, a, a guy who did research on roadkill and said these are suicides. And <laughs> I don't think there was... <laughs> But that was not really serious. That wasn't the same guy who talked about the, the duck necrophilia. Do you know that guy? No, I don't know. Who won the Ig Nobel Prize a couple oh, years ago? I got the Ig Nobel Prize. Did you get it as well? Because <laughs> he's, Dutch, he's Dutch too. I, I, so I thought you might know him. popular in Holland, actually, the Ig Nobel. For what were you rewarded the Ig Nobel Prize? I did a study on do chimpanzees recognize each other by their behinds. And I wrote a paper, a scientific paper, in a scientific journal called Faces and Behinds. 
And, and because we were doing studies on faces, do they, can they see from a face of a chimp or a bonobo that it's a male or a female? And we didn't know how to ask the question. How do you ask the question? Is, if this, is this a male or a female? And so since the behinds of males and females are so different, in bonobos and chimps they have balloons on them, like pink balloons. So since the behinds are so different, we use the behind to, to have them tell us, is this face, does it belong to this behind or that behind? And that's how we discovered, by accident, that uh, they can match. Uh, so you can put up, for example, two faces, two female faces, and you show them one female behind, and that behind belongs to one of these faces, and they can make that connection. So they recognize each other by the... It has never been tried on humans. It may be a uniquely uh, chimpanzee skill, you know? So did they... They knew these chimpanzees already? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't the facial characteristic no, that no. corresponded, they, I see. They could actually only do it with chimps that they knew. Oh. They could not do it with chimps that they did not know. So when you see, like, Kim Kardashian and this sort of business, this must just ring all sorts of bells for you. Yeah, that's a very behind-focused... Actually, the culture seems to become more behind-focused than frontally-focused. So this was was an old idea, is that... uh, the human behind or the human breasts mimic the behind or something like that. Right. Genital echo theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a theory, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and actually there's, there's a website I saw that uh, has photos of the uh, breast cleavage, like a close-up, and the ass cheeks. And you have to guess, is it cleavage or ass cheeks? And it's, it's impossible because you know, the hair pattern, you know, everything looks exactly the same. That's wonderful. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for making time for me. I, I hope you enjoyed your time in Oregon. I did. I did. It was a wonder, it's a wonderful state. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting it by going to fundwhatyoulove.com where you can uh, throw a little change in a tip jar that uh, is, comes in as a monthly thing. So you can, you know, buy me a coffee every month or whatever you, however you want to envision it. Um, you can also support the podcast by buying T-shirts that my mom will send to you. You can find them at chrisryanphd.com in the store. You can, um, there's a donation page there. And you can also use the Amazon affiliate link on chrisryanphd.com so that we'll get a cut of whatever you spend at Amazon. Uh, that's about it. I want to remind you about the, the uh, tangentially speaking Reddit subforum. If you use Reddit, it's a nice place to meet other people, listen to the podcast, talk about episodes, uh, share notes. I go on there and try to answer questions and stuff. So it's also a good place to, to chat. Um, that's at Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T, and then just look for tangentially speaking one word. What else do I need to tell you? Uh, I think that's it. Thanks to Danny Osment, as always, for mastering the files. Sure Design T-shirts for making those wonderful T-shirts my mom sends out. If you buy anything direct from Sure Design T-shirts, use Sex at Dawn at checkout. You get 10% off everything. Thanks to BasinAndRangeBand.com for the opening music. And as always, to the beautiful, wonderful, funny, articulate, crazy, creative Carsey Blanton, for Smoke Alarm, the song you're about to hear now. Thanks for listening, and remember, you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. 
example, I could kiss you just because I want to. And what's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. to the ground. 